Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. So we'll begin with a reading and a prayer. This is from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, so all went to be enrolled, each to his own town. And Joseph, too, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David that is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to have her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Messiah and Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let us pray. Almighty God, most merciful Father, we praise you that the Son, eternally born of you, is born in the fullness of time from the Virgin Mary. We ask you now that by the power of his Holy Spirit, we may praise you this day and evermore. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, for he lives and reigns with you in unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Of the Father's love begotten, this is the title of our intellectual retreat of the Father's Love Begotten, an intellectual retreat on the Incarnation. I'm honored to be asked to speak on of the Father's Love Begotten for this final talk of our intellectual retreat. Of the Father's Love Begotten is a beautiful Christmas hymn. And I think by gift of grace, the doctrinal beauty of Christmas hymns, such as of the Father's Love Begotten, can move the world to praise God for the incarnation of the eternal Son, born of the Virgin Mary, for our salvation. I'd like for us to do this by having three steps. The first step is to step back and think simply about Christmas carols. The second one is to consider of the Father's love begotten in terms of its author, text, the translation that is familiar to us, and context for it. And then after that, we're going to have a meditation on the four verses of, of the Father's Love Begotten that is found in the hymnal that we're using, okay? And then we're going to conclude this with singing the hymn. Father Jonah will sing the first verse of the hymn, and then those of us who know this hymn can join him for the following three verses, and then uh, we can be seated again for the questions and answers, okay? So in terms of just beginning with Christmas carols, the first Christmas carol occurred over Bethlehem on the night of Christmas. 
It's the angels. Okay, so it's just really important to see that the first Christmas carol is precisely this angelic praise. And that they sing out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill. This is what the church echoes in the Mass's Gloria. Now, uh, the church likes to have fasting in preparation for feasting. So a fast is always a fast that is able to stretch us so as really to be able to feast. Okay, so let's just think about this way. Uh, uh, if you happen to love an all-you-can-eat buffet, okay, like an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet, are you going to be snacking through the afternoon before uh, you go out to the all-you-can-eat buffet in the evening? Maybe, but maybe not. And the reason, especially the maybe not, is because you want to get your money's worth, okay? And you, if you have... <laughs> If you have a, uh, uh, you know, and I, you know, sometimes people will say all you care to eat. I like all you can eat because, <laughs> because it's a challenge. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, then you think about this in terms of stretching us so as to prepare us to feast. During the holy season of Advent, we don't sing the Gloria in the Sundays of Advent. Okay, so it's, uh, the Gloria is sung uh, on Sundays and feasts and solemnities of the church's year, but we don't do this during Advent, uh, during the Sundays of Advent, that is. And I think especially by the absence, getting us to, uh, in a sense, to arouse our appetite. To, it's not because it's bad, but because it is so good that we need to prepare to do this well, okay? So just in terms of thinking about that we actually are not singing the Gloria during the Sundays of Advent because it's so special. So that way then at Christmas, we can sing what the angels sing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace to people of goodwill. All right, so, so then you think about the importance of absence that prepares you for the presence, uh, the fasting that prepares you for the feasting, and that this then is especially uh, something of joy uh, and wonder and praise. Now, every Christmas carol, in some sense, echoes that angelic hymn on, on Christmas night. Right, so structurally the liturgy provides this, but there's this phenomenon of all sorts of beautiful Christmas carols that really have some basic themes. Why? Because they're Christmas carols. Okay, so you just think about the, it expresses the Christian faith and how Christians have a great opportunity during this time of year uh, where, uh, where you can go and have Christmas carols played in all sorts of public places. Right? And you could go into, you know, into some sort of public place, and sometimes they'll even have the words, the lyrics. It's not just simply the, the music, but you, uh, but you have the lyrics that are sung out. And you listen to it, and it's like, oh, uh, you think uh, Christ is born. There's a whole thing about what, what Christmas really is. Okay? And that these Christmas carols, many of them are very beautiful, right? So, so then you, you think about the opportunity for us to cultivate our own love for Christmas carols and then to be able to communicate our love for Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, to the world. Christmas carols are evangelizing, that we really can uh, spread the good news that, well, uh, as, the, as the shepherds heard from heaven, that for today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Messiah and Lord. We need a Savior. The world needs a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. So this is where, in terms of just thinking about the importance of that, and then how we do this uh, because of our love, of our joy. Okay, so... Uh, St. Augustine did not say, or at least we have about 5 million words from St. Augustine, 5 million words from St. Augustine, 
uh, you know, sometimes we may hear, uh, so well, St. Augustine says that uh, he who uh, uh, sings uh, prays twice, okay? And then said, no, it's he who sings well prays twice. <laughs> Neither one is found in St. Augustine's uh, writings. But he does say that it belongs to the lover to sing, okay? So in terms of that, especially uh, uh, love, and then during this life on earth, St. Augustine knows that this has all sorts of difficulties, but that we are to sing and keep going, okay? Sing and keep walking, sing and keep moving. Because even now, uh, we're meant to enjoy God and to let others know of that enjoyment of God. So this is where, in terms of our joy, because joy is when you know that you have a wonderful good, okay? That rationally, spiritually, you know you have this wonderful good. And then to be able to communicate it, and, and especially in terms of, of singing. And that praise then allows us to, uh, to uh, praise isn't just simply a compliment. God doesn't need our praise, okay? That thanksgiving itself is his gift to us because thanksgiving and praise, um, what we do for God is actually transforming us, okay? God doesn't get happier uh, with more praise. He does not accrue. Uh, so, so this is just really different because, well, like if you think, oh, uh, you know, if I did this for someone, that person will be happy. You know, if, okay, God is happy. And what he wants is us to be joined to his happiness for he knows us, he, he knows us inside out and he knows that he has made us for himself. Okay, not in terms of some sort of power grab because he actually doesn't need us at all but just to communicate his goodness, his love. All right, so, so then uh, that we praise precisely because of the incarnation. Now, this is where I want to ask, uh, and you can just think about this, do you have a favorite Christmas carol? If you do, I urge you to meditate on it. So in terms of hearing it sung, singing with, it, singing with others, uh, that carol, uh, singing it alone, meditate on it. What are the words that are being said there? Think, pray about the very words, okay? Now, uh, now some carols are doctrinally rich uh, to a, a great degree. Other carols are very simple, but they still have a great message. Like one of my favorite Christmas carols is Little Drummer Boy. Okay, I mean, this is Little Drummer Boy. Yeah, but uh, uh, I played my best for him. Pa-rumpa-pum-pum. -pum -pum. You know, that... That is just so good. You know, this is what, by grace, we want to do, is to play our best for him. Pa-rumpa-pum-pum. Rumpa-pum-pum. Rumpa-pum-pum. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> All right, so I love that. Simple, simple, I, I love it. Now, one of the other uh, Christmas carols I particularly love is Of the Father's Love Begotten. It has a more hallowed pedigree than Little Drummer Boy. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more uh, dignitas for the Thomistic Institute. But I'd like for us now to consider, in terms of part two, of the Father's Love Begotten, the author, text, translation, context. Who's the author? Well, the author is a late 4th century, early 5th century Spaniard, usually known as Prudentius. So sometimes the name Marcus is, out, is seen within his name, uh, Aurelius Clemens Prudentius. Northern Spain, he died probably in the year 413. Now, in terms of this time, he is a younger contemporary to St. Ambrose of Milan, who died in 397. And St. Ambrose is said to have written the first Christmas carol in the West. Okay, so if you're interested in St. Ambrose and his hymns, I highly recommend Father Brian Dunkel's book uh, on enchantment and creed concerning St. Ambrose's hymns. So, so uh, one uh, hymn that is called the first Western carol is Intende Qui Regis Israel from St. Ambrose. So hearken you who rule Israel. And Father Dunkel thinks it was perhaps written for Vespers of Christmas Eve 
and the second verse is, begins, Veni Redemptor Gentium. So that what has been translated in different languages, and sometimes people will sing, Savior of the nations, come. Okay, so, so Veni Redemptor Gentium, come, Redeemer of the nations of the peoples. The fifth verse is actually found within St. Augustine's writings because he loved St. Ambrose's hymns so much that he sometimes quotes them. And by the way, his mother uh, loved the hymns and also quotes uh, St. Ambrose's singing. So uh, the fifth verse has, thus he proceeds from his chamber, the royal hall of modesty, the giant of twin substance, keen to run the race. Now, sometimes when this hymn, uh, in terms of Savior of the Nations, come, that people don't sing that because they don't understand it. Right? So this is where, in terms of certain things in Christmas carols, it seem archaic, and then people don't understand. Uh, it's like Joy to the World, the verse about as far as the curse is found. It's like, oh, why would we sing about curses? Well, read Genesis 3, cursed be the ground, <laughs> that, that actually this is a, about the punishment of original sin, and we, pre we sing out joy to the world, to the world, because Jesus Christ is born to take away original sin and all sins. All right. So there is a curse. All sorts of people feel that their lives are cursed or are suffering from curse in different ways. Original sin. All right. And then to be able to see um, that we really can sing out because as far as that curse is found, his salvation is there. Okay. There's just a flowing over. All right. But if people don't understand, oh, that's it, then actually it could just be dropped. Right, so in terms of the giant of twin substance, uh, keen to run the race, well, it's the psalm in terms of uh, like a bridegroom uh, that who runs out like the sun, you know, going its course. The giant um, of twin substance, divine and human. Right, so Saint Augustine uses Saint Ambrose's words to uh, against Arianism. Right, so uh, so Arianism again. Uh, in its various forms, does not think that the Son is equal to the Father, that the Son is created from nothing, uh, that there was once when the Son was not. Uh, so in different ways, you find all sorts of variations of what is commonly called Arianism. All right. So lots of Christmas hymns combat Arius's own singing. Okay. So he had a, a hymn called The Banquet, uh, and that these hymns then are attracting people to sing the Nicene faith, you know, the Catholic Orthodox faith. So Prudentius then can be seen from that influence of Ambrose in the West and, and how Prudentius then actually wrote many different hymns, many different um, uh, poems that are in different collections. Prudentius was very influential in the medieval liturgy. And then in terms of thinking uh, from the uh, Tridentine reforms, the Roman breviary of 1568 has seven of Prudentius's hymns. Okay, so seven of Prudentius's hymns are in the Roman breviary from 1568. Now, our hymn, so what we call of the Father's love begotten, is actually within a hymn that's called uh, the hymn of every hour. So hymnus omnis hore. And it's the ninth of 12 hymns in the collection called the Liber Catamarinon. So it's from a Greek way of thinking about the whole day. And it goes, so it's a collection, this, this Liber, this book, Kataraminon, uh, the book of the whole day. And the original hymn from which Of the Father's Love Begotten has 38 verses. 38 verses of three lines per verse. Okay? So Of the Father's Love Begotten is actually a translation of excerpts from this longer hymn, very long hymn, Hymnus Omnis Hore. Right? Now, the fourth verse begins, Corde natus ex parentis ante mundi, ante mundi exordium. Okay, so in terms of just thinking about this, so literally, born from the heart of the father, or the parent, uh, before the beginning of the world. Right? So, one, uh, one translation of this verse is, Of the Father's heart and begotten, ere the world from chaos rose, he is Alpha from that fountain, 
all that is and hath been flows. He is Omega of all things, yet to come the mystic close. All right, so there are different ways of translating it. And John Mason Neal, who was a very fine translator of Greek and Latin hymns in the 19th century, so Church of England translator, uh, who uh, who died fairly young. Um, oftentimes, if you're reading, if you're singing a hymn that is a translation in English from in from Greek or Latin, look down and does it say J. M. Neal, okay, or John Mason Neal, because he did so many, okay. So he just did a wonderful service. His hymn was adjusted by Henry W. Baker for the hymns ancient and modern. So in terms of the English hymnody uh, tradition, and uh, the very end of this 38-verse uh, uh, hymn uh, says, Secolorum Secolis, okay? So forevermore and evermore, okay? For unto the ages and to the ages. And what happened was that these final words, which would be common in doxologies, so praising God, these final words then were attached to each of the verses, okay? Uh, and uh, and so uh, so... Then how, because then it's uh, detached from its original uh, hymn uh, for every hour, you know, in terms of the very long hymn, it became within the context a Christmas hymn, a Christmas carol. Okay, so that's where now we understand this, especially at Christmas, but, uh, but you can see that it can be used in different ways. All right, so, so this is where we're meditating precisely on the incarnation with this. So now we go to... Part three, meditating on the Father's love begotten. And uh, rather than being in some way pedantic by always going back to the Latin because the translation isn't a perfect translation if you want to talk about literal translations, but it is poetic. I just want us to focus on the hymn that we have. So the most common English version of it. All right. So in terms of the Neil Baker translation. So I'm going to read the, the verse, and then I'm going to comment on it, especially with the use of scripture, because I want us to be able to appreciate the scriptural background for these verses. The first verse is this, of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he, of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. This first verse is precisely locating our faith in God. All right, so this is where in terms of just to go back to who God is and within the mystery of the most holy trinity that we're meditating on the eternal birth of the Son from the Father. All right, so in terms of thinking about this, uh, with all sorts of Christological controversies, that there was a mirroring where the early church came to realize that in terms of terms, we wanted to have a consistency between how we speak of the mystery of the Trinity and how we speak of the mystery of the Incarnation. So St. Thomas Aquinas will talk about that all the articles of faith depend upon these two mysteries, the eternal Trinity, and then that one of the Trinity, who is the eternal Son, was made flesh. Okay, so that the same subject of Christology is that one who is the eternal son. So that the son of the father who was generated by the father, okay, so that procession that's known by generation, that same one now is sent and then has a mission. So a mission, the mission of the son that we're speaking of now, is nothing less than the eternal generation of the father with its temporal effect. I'll repeat that the son, uh, so in terms of Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, uh, born under the law. Okay, so that one who is sent is precisely the eternal son, and that his sending is precisely in time because he is eternally begotten of the Father. Right now, why is this important in terms of Christological things? So in terms of persons, that we speak of the Trinity as three persons, and there's only one person, the eternal Son, who then took upon himself our human nature. So in terms of a Trinitarian Christological mirroring, 
that the three of the Blessed Trinity, three persons, one essence or nature or substance, whereas in terms of the incarnation, that you have a reversal of multiplicity and unity. So that one of the three is now incarnate, who now has two natures because of his eternal nature and then taking to himself a temporal nature. Right? So this is where in terms of, of these terms, to be able to see that there's a mirroring uh, about unity and multiplicity concerning person or substance. Right? And then it's very important, if you were to read the anathemas of the fifth synod, so the fifth ecumenical council, which is Constantinople two and 553, it actually begins with the Trinity. And then to be able to see that in terms of the Trinity, that it's this one, again, the son, who then has an eternal birth from the father and now a temporal birth, okay? So, uh, uh, or, or you, uh, to you go back uh, to take one example that's earlier, St. Leo the Great, that this son is first consubstantial with the father, Okay, so in terms of the homoousios, uh, that, that the son is consubstantial with the father. Well, the creed doesn't say this, but then uh, the church thought, oh, we need to say it. Not only consubstantial with the father, he's consubstantial with us precisely by that temporal birth. Okay, so that you have then the same subject, the eternal son, who is born of the father and now is uh, born in time, in the fullness of time, the same subject. Okay, so, uh, so just to be able to see that, and then in terms of that scriptural background, so by going back to God, okay, so just thinking in terms of, of preparing us to announce the birth of this one in time, that we go back to the eternal birth of the Father. You know, from the Father, the Son is born, that eternal birth. So John 1, 18, 1 uh, and then 1 to 18 is that prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then all things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. All right, so that you have um, already then the sense of the eternal birth of the, of the Son from the Father, and that in terms of creation, all things came to be through him. The Father creates through the Son in the Holy Spirit, because God is not a blob. Okay, so you just think about the, the Trinity acting as one concerning creation. The Trinity uh, acts as one precisely because the Father is Father, the Son is Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. All right, so that the Father creates through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And that unity, the inseparableness of their operations. Um, and, and so uh, John 1, 1 18, um, concludes, no one has ever seen God. The only son, God, who's at the father's side has revealed him. So the son then is at the father's side. Okay, so the Greek word there is kopos. And so in terms of the, the father's breast or chest or side. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, that word appears uh, again in John's gospel account when the beloved disciple leans upon the son's chest at the Last Supper. Uh, so in terms of as the son is to the father, we are meant to be to the son. Okay, so uh, always at his side. All right, so, uh, uh, so all, so, or you could go, and you just think about this in terms of Genesis, because John is, is uh, adapting what he reads in Genesis, because what's the beginning of Genesis? Well, in the beginning. And then you think about how uh, that God said, okay? Um, so God said, meaning that God speaks. Um, God is not without his word, All right? So, so then in terms of, of that, of God, who God is and how this is being expressed, uh, he is Alpha and Omega, okay? So he is Alpha and Omega, Revelation uh, chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1 again, I am the first and the last, the one who lives. Once I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All right, so that the book of Revelation, in looking at in, uh, the Lamb, the Lamb receives worship. Okay, angels don't receive worship. Because the Lamb is on the throne of God. 
And so just in terms of you think about um, that which is God and that which is not God, um, that Jesus, uh, the, the Lamb of God, is God. Okay, so to be able to see that and that that is revealed and that all things then, uh, all, all things that are, that have been, and the future years shall see. You know, that he, he's the source and the ending for all of that. Or you could go to the letter to the Colossians chapter 1. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I remember when I was a student brother, uh, one of the brothers just, you know, in terms of sharing this, because we sing this Colossians hymn on Wednesday evenings and uh, in Vespers, and he said, you know, I never really thought about that all things were made for him. And it's just a beautiful moment of sharing of the faith where I thought, you know, gee, did I ever think about that? That the Father made all things for him, and then you think about John chapter 17, Father, they are your gift to me. And then in terms of how the Son is, uh, gives us over to the Father. And then how then uh, we, we then um, have a Trinitarian identity. That this is where in terms of who we are and what we are meant to be, that's precisely uh, within uh within the gift that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, um, gives. And it's just, it's just really mind-boggling to think about this. And to, because, again, God doesn't need us at all. Okay? It's precisely the creation, everything, is the gratuity of it, is what um, God does in goodness for us. All right, so just enter that first verse, Christ is God. The second verse Christ is man. Okay, so we've already done the work that in terms of thinking about the specialness of this birth, okay, because lots of people are born, and well, you know, huh, yeah. So, <laughs> like, what, like, uh, and then you think, well, actually, uh, there is something special about a birth, but this birth is the birth of the eternal Son of God, now sent for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary. All right, so the second verse. Oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the, Savior of our, bore the Savior of our race. And the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, evermore and evermore. Right, so in terms of this, you can think about how Luke chapter 1 in the Annunciation, the Virgin Mary is called full of grace, and that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, so that the hymn is, is expressing what we read in Luke 1 about the Annunciation, what we meditate upon in the first joyful mystery, what we say so often in terms of the Hail Mary. St. Leo the Great says that for the faithful, the birth of the Son of God from the Virgin Mary is meditated upon uh, in, uh, on all days and all the time. Okay. So it's not just simply Christmas that we think about the Son of God born, you know, but when we meditate on divine things, dearly beloved, St. Leo the Great says, that um, it's, always, it's always there. Christians, in a sense, cannot meditate on divine things without thinking about how the Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, so this is where in terms of, of thinking about this and, and how Catholic churches, uh, in terms of iconography, so depictions of Christ. The two most common, of course, are the crucifix and the child Jesus in his mother's arms. Okay? And, and so, you know, the, that, that, uh, that the cross is not just simply Good Friday. Uh, you know, the cross is not just simply seen on Good Friday, but there's a, a, something special about the Good Friday vision of the cross. Um, but also the, um, that we don't want, um, we don't want, only the nativity at Christmas. We want to see the child with the mother all the time. We, we want to meditate on this all the time. All right, so, uh, and then, and the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. Now, I want us uh, to think about the importance of the face. The psalmist prays in Psalm 27, Of you my heart has spoken, seek its face. It is your face, O Lord, that I seek. Hide not your face. 
Now, ultimately, in terms of the beatific vision, we will see God face to face if we are blessed with that everlasting salvation, evermore and evermore, seeing God face to face without any sort of intermediary, and how we can pray, uh, of you my heart has spoken, seek his face. It is your face, O Lord, that I seek, hide not your face. This is the face of the Almighty. God doesn't want us to wait. In fact, God wants us, in fact, to be saved precisely by becoming one of us. And that already now we can be divinized, deified, sharing, uh, being made partakers of the divine nature through the incarnation. Because God has taken upon himself a human face. And so that, uh, and you think about Christmas, that the child was hidden within his mother's womb, but now he's born a savior. And the Virgin Mary then could look upon the face of God, the human face of God, and give that face a kiss. Right? So for us to be able to see the beauty of the incarnation and how God wants us to be raised up from things visible to love of things invisible. You know, that there is that... That there is, uh, that God exists beyond all created things. And that's precisely through the humanity that our devotion, the humanity of Jesus Christ, that our humanity, that our devotion can be stirred so as to, to go toward God, that Jesus is the way to the Father. Right? So then the third verse, okay, so first verse, Christ is God, eternal birth. Second verse, Christ is man, temporal birth, verse. The third verse, union of heaven and earth. Okay, union of heaven and earth. So listen to verse three. O ye heights of heaven, adore him. Angel hosts his praises sing. Powers, dominions bow before him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent. Every voice in concert ring. Evermore and evermore. Notice how it begins with heaven and then goes down to earth. Let no tongue on earth be silent. We need first off to be silent in order to hear heaven. Otherwise, we're just going to hear the noise of this world. And then once we have heard in our silence what heaven says to us, then let no tongue on earth be silent. And that then uh, we're going to be in concert with one another because of being in concert with heaven's praise, right? So that is the vision then of Christmas, right? So you can think about uh, heaven's praise, especially in the book of Revelation. So Revelation 7, all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They prostrated themselves before the throne, worshiped God and exclaimed, amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power and might to our God forever and ever, amen. For the lamb who is in the center of the throne will shepherd them. Okay, so, uh, so that is the, the heavenly liturgy. Okay, uh, Luke allows us to experience something of that heavenly liturgy with that glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Philippians 2, within the great Philippians hymn, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All right, so then to imagine this and then to believe the truthfulness that Jesus Christ is Lord and already now to be able to shout it out, okay? So again, um, let no tongue on earth be silent, all right? Because even if you know, if, if you don't um, cry out, the very stones would cry out. Okay, so in terms of just thinking about, about the importance of considering the, the, how, how, the, how you need to say something. All right, so St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, 
And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if they should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Richard Wilbur in his Christmas hymn says, A stable lamp is lighted, whose glow shall wake the sky. The stars shall bend their voices, and every stone shall cry, and every stone shall cry. And straw like gold shall shine, a barn shall harbor heaven, a stall shall become, a stall become a shrine. This child through David's city shall ride and triumph by. The palm shall strew its branches, and every stone shall cry, and every stone shall cry. Though heavy, dull, and dumb, and lie within the roadway to pave his kingdom come. Yet he shall be forsaken and yielded up to die. The sky shall groan and darken, and every stone shall cry, and every stone shall cry. For stony hearts of men, God's blood upon the spearhead, God's love refused again. But now is at the ending, the low is lifted high. The star shall bend their voices, and every stone shall cry, and every stone shall cry. And praises of the child, by whose descent among us, the worlds are reconciled. Richard Wilbur. So verse four then is that praise. Okay, so it's common for, um, for everything to end with doxology because doxology is what does not end. Okay, evermore and evermore. Praising God. That's what heaven is. Okay, so, uh, so to be able to see that. And then here's verse four. Christ to thee with God the Father and O Holy Ghost to thee. Him and chant in high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be, honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory, evermore and evermore. Notice then that we have turned in verse 4 to Jesus himself. We're not just simply talking about him, we're speaking to him. Christ to thee with God the Father. All right, so it's a Trinitarian praise, and you can think about Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it's especially focused on Jesus. All sorts of patristic homilies end with a quotation or variation of 1 Peter 4, Jesus Christ, to whom being long glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So in terms of especially a praise to the Son within the Trinity, uh, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 17, the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who with him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 19, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and might belong to our God. Then I heard something like the sound of a great multitude or the sound of rushing water or mighty peals of thunder as they said, Alleluia, the Lord has established his reign, our God, the Almighty. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Alleluia. St. Augustine says that heaven is Amen, Alleluia. Okay, it's true. Praise God. And this is why in terms of the Psalms, that it concludes with praise. So Psalm 150, praise God in his holy place. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his powerful deeds. Praise his surpassing greatness. That now we can desire that eternal praise of God and have it begun in our hearts and in our lives. Because of the incarnation. That the eternal Son of God is born of the Virgin Mary for our salvation. We give him praise. So Father Jonah is going to sing the ver first verse, and after we hear the first verse, uh, we'll sing the following three verses. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he. Of the things that are that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. Oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's Redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, 
evermore and evermore. O ye heights of heaven, adore him, angel hosts his praises sing. Powers, dominions bow before him, and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silenced, every voice in concert ring, evermore and evermore. Christ to thee with God the Father, and O Holy Ghost to thee, him enchant and high thanksgiving, and unwearied praises be. Honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory, evermore and evermore. So we have some time for questions and answers and comments. Thank you. All right. So this is where in terms of happiness. So uh, first of all, we're talking in English and it can be a little bit confusing because there are certain words that can be translated in different ways. So uh, one word for happiness in Latin would be beatudo. Okay, so in terms of a happiness or beatitude, and that various philosophies and religions commonly uh, have held that what we want is happiness, to be happy. Okay, so this is not simply Thomistic. All sorts of philosophies, all sorts of religions want this. And then how the question is, uh, where are you going to find it? How are you going to have it? What is it? What will make you happy? And then, to, and then to think about um, the different um, things that seem to happen to happiness, but don't. And then St. Thomas Aquinas um, understands that this happiness is precisely an everlasting contemplation of God. So in terms of seeing God face to face in heaven. And that really is uh, happiness in terms of that strict sense. Uh, now, uh, now, joy then... Uh, so in terms of Latin, uh, joy is especially gaudium or letitia, okay? So, uh, and joy can be considered on one level as a passion. So if it's a passion, uh, as an emotion, that there are all sorts of animals that can have a passion uh, uh, that is um, of delight, okay? So you can see a dog having various kinds of delight, okay? Uh, and you could do, you know, and, and sometimes you might say, oh, the dog is happy. Okay, well, all right. So the, there are passions and all sorts of animals that would express some sort of happiness. Now, we actually, this is not the happiness of seeing God face to face in heaven, you know, in terms of a dog having some food that the dog really likes, right? But that, but notice then it can just help us think about being content, fulfilled, satisfied. And particularly if there's something that will more than satisfy us. Okay, so in terms of beyond uh, what, what is our, um, our thinking. All right, so then in terms of uh, St. Thomas says that joy, properly speaking, is not just simply any type of delight, delectatio uh, would be one word for delight, but it is that kind of delight that is a spiritual or rational awareness of a present good. Okay, so in terms of being able um, to, uh, uh, to have that which you love. And then in terms of joy, you see that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the Galatians list of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, you know, and that joy then is a, a, an effect of the uh, theological virtue of charity. So an interior uh, effect of it that's born in our heart. Um, and so then to uh, see how uh, God does not have passions. 
So I love how St. Thomas concludes his treatment of the questions about the divine essence of what the three persons have in common. Um, and he concludes with that happiness of God. So the beatitude of God, question 26 of the Prima Pars. And so, so you just think um, in terms of the structure of the Summa, um, uh, that uh, question one is on sacred doctrina, so sacred doctrine, questions two through 26 on the divine essence, questions 27 through 43 about the three persons. And he concludes that part with the missions. So in terms of how the Son and the Holy Spirit are sent to us, so in terms of particularly, you now we're meditating on Christmas. Well, that, that culminates uh, in terms of his pedagogy of the Trinity, and then, and then you have creation uh, proceeding from God. But in terms of the divine essence, the happiness of God. So God is happy in himself, utterly, completely happy. And then you can think about the joy that he has uh, in terms of this happiness, this, but it's not a happiness of a passion. And this is where, in terms of the complexity of human life, that you really can have a joy that uh, allows you to have a sorrow because you're thinking about different things. All right, so this is where, in terms of, say, Christian mourning or lamenting, that uh, St. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice, the Lord is near. Well, I think that because of a Christian joy, that we're allowed sorrow because we can see how the joy is sustaining us to be able to grieve, okay? So like to grieve our own sinfulness because of the, uh, of, of the abiding joy. You know, it's the saint who really knows uh, his or her sinfulness. Okay? Saints most know their own sinfulness and mourn their sinfulness because of a joy that's allowing them to do this. You know, or in terms of when, when that which you love is hurt, okay? So if you love someone and the person gets hurt, well, Christian joy will allow you to have that. Uh, sorry. So then you think, oh, could someone cry and have joy in terms of, well, you, uh, you could have tears of joy. But also that because um, joy is not just simply a passion, but that it's something spiritual in terms of, again, knowing that that which you love, uh, that great good is with you. Okay? And then think about Our Lady. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. You know, so, so Our Lady then, who is the cause of our joy, she's the mother of sorrows. Right? And, and that we can say this, you know, when we meditate on the fifth sorrowful mystery, the crucifixion with Our Lady standing at the foot of the cross. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And, um, and in a sense, it's uh, our reminding, okay, uh, our entrance into the memory of Our Lady, of how the joy allows her to have a sorrow like no other, Except, of course, it's a sorrow and participating in her son's sorrow. So that's where, in terms of just thinking about the differences and um, in terms of happiness, joy, and uh, human beings and, and God. All right, so is it right if we um, pray a, a glory be and I give you a blessing? Okay. So, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was to be May the peace and blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down on you and may it be forever. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father Andrew. We thank both Father Andrew and Father Andrew.